Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. One of the things that I love about social media, specifically LinkedIn, is I am meeting some incredible heart-centered leaders all over the globe. And today, I'm so, I'm so excited to interview Tanya Tarr. She is a behavioral scientist and a writer for Forbes, and she's also the president and founder of Cultivated Insights out of Austin, Texas. So we have so many things to cover. So Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Deb. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad that you reached out and I just want to dive in because I have so many questions for you. I've had to reduce my amount of questions for for 30 minutes because we have so (laughs) much to talk about, but we have a lot in common and you're a behavioral scientist and my background's in neuroscientists, neuroscience, pardon me. And I love that we both do workshops. We work with teams. You also use a smart evaluation to work with C-suite leaders. So let's kind of dive in. And my first question is, I love the name of your business, Cultivated Insights. And I know that you cultivate and you also provide insights to C-suite leaders. So tell us a little bit of how that came together and the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, naming and branding is not my strong suit. And I had, I started like many people doing coaching, executive coaching type stuff. Um, and so it went through many iterations, but it cultivated insights, a very, uh, a baby business. We, I launched it about a year and a half ago. And I think for me, cultivation, and I think this ties into heart centered leadership, Um, I think that there's a lot of praise or there was a lot of praise of like disruption and things like that. Um, And I think that the, I see the counterbalance to disruption as cultivation. Um, I think that part of why we globally are in the space we're in right now is that um, people just didn't really respect time. And, and the business that I'm developing have developed, uh, is really the collection of a lot of wisdom, both in my own learned experience, um, but then also with incredible leaders that I've worked with and incredible experts and scientists that I draw from when I'm designing workshops and particularly evaluation. So that's where Cultivated Insights came from. Uh, And then we, you know, and, and it ended up spanning out into other sort of connected versions of the business. Um, so I ended up, this is so kind of random, but a lot of what I do actually is helping people and companies and corporations understand that we're in a space where we need to be thinking about, and I'm going to use, Deb, I feel like I can use this language with you because uh, I know we share very similar kind of intellectual uh, backgrounds, but um, it's not, training is not so much about 
skill acquisition these days. It's actually about behavioral modification. The pandemic has completely changed the way we work. And um, so anyhow, not to get too much off on a tangent here, but I accidentally created a, 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 a planner that I, um, and you mentioned social media, Deb, I, I made a planner for myself because um, I bought a binding machine because I don't know, because I like making stuff with my hands. And um, I made a, a planner and it has like a time tracker on it. And it's the result of uh, a, a kind of a rubric and a diagram that I created when I was recovering from chronic illness to track my time and keep my attention span, you know, kind of on the mark. And, but anyhow, I, I made this thing for fun <laughs> uh, and I tweeted it. And um, a bunch of people said, oh, I'd pay money for that. And I was like, are you, you guys are joking, right? And then I, I was like, as a joke, I was like, well, just Venmo me 10 bucks and I'll send you a copy. And then I went out to dinner with my husband and my phone started pinging while we were in the restaurant. And I was like, what is going on? And I, like four people had Venmoed me money. And I was like, oh man, you gotta be kidding me. So now I had to make these planners for people and send them out. And anyhow, it just kind of mushroomed. So Cultivated Insights is the work I do with organizations. Um, it's mostly learning and development for teams and also, you know, for anyone in an organization. But Cultivated Tools are now another little spinoff um, where I make kind of small batch productivity uh, items that help people. And then the Cultivated School is uh, the online workshops that I do because um, in the last couple of years, well, you know, well before we were thinking about future work kind of stuff, um, I started teaching negotiation skills classes um, via Zoom, um, and my students are from all over the world, and it's just been extraordinary to be able to connect with people in real time and teach them the type of collaborative skills uh, that I think are so vital. Well, what I didn't share with you is my background is in community-based case management. And I worked with a lot of men and women who had chronic illness. So I, I was literally smiling ear to ear as you're sharing because one of my favorite cliches or metaphors is growth always comes from the valley. So here's you self-auditing, creating a compensatory strategy to track your time and move you through this illness and, and look where it's brought you and, and how it's now been a tool. And you're right, tools do help with behavioral modification. And what a great idea for that planner. And it's still existing today and you're still using it. Yeah, I actually uh, had to slow down the production aspect because, you know, for all those reasons. But, um, but yeah, it was funny actually, Deb, when I made it, uh, it's meant to help you with the day. It's not so much like most people want planners so they can look at a whole year or six months or something like that. And sorry, there's a plane going overhead. Uh, so, and I lost my train. Th Deb, I hope you can edit this. Sorry. I hope if you can't, well, we'll just keep rolling. But um, when I made the planner, it was actually meant to track the individual days. It's not meant to encompass a calendar year so you can write in the date um and at the time everyone a couple of people were like well you should make a calendar year and i was like nah it's just for the day um and, and which is which is useful now because it's hard to you know track the uh the, the the weeks in the calendar year but um helen rosner who writes for 
incredible publication that is escaping me right now, but she's a food writer uh, and brilliant. And she tweeted the other day that every day is the present now because of the pandemic. So it, it, uh, it has been surprising that this tool that I created uh, still manages to help people um, just keep, keep track. And, and uh, you know, brain plasticity is, I think, important and difficult to try to achieve when you're always in sort of a state of chronic hypervigilance. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. And that's a really great uh, term. I used to work with a lot of first responders. And mm. how do you come home from being on a shift of anywhere from eight to 12 hours working at a level of hypervigilance, seeing the worst of the worst, being exposed to loss and trauma and sit down and eat dinner with your family. So really good, good point there. And just to reiterate, the name of the podcast is Imperfect. And I love that there's a plane flying over, you lose your train of thought and we we carry on with progression. So well done, (laughs) well done. Sorry about that. I love it. And congratulations, because I know that you were number 24 on the most influential voice on Twitter, and you were a rising star winner in 2009, and you've really made a significant mark, I think, with some of the work that you've done. So I want to take you back a little bit to your schooling. So I know you have your Bachelor of Science in uh, Political Science, History, and Policy, and then you went on to do your Master's of Science in Performance Measurement from Carnegie Mellon University. I'd love to hear, did you decide to do a thesis or a research project, and what led you to pursue your Master's? Um, I think... I think I, I'm confident enough to be super uh, authentic and honest with you, Deb. Uh, I I was in college in the late '90s and my at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, I I actually ended up at CMU um, because that's where the scholarship. The I got a full ride to go there, and um, if I didn't have a scholarship, just the you know where where I was coming from. If I didn't have a scholarship, I wasn't going to college. So that made that decision, and then you know, late nineties, Carnegie Mellon's a technical university. Um, and, uh, so people were graduating, my friends were graduating and moving to Silicon Valley and becoming paper millionaires almost immediately. Cause it was the dot com boom. And, uh, I, I, I kind of, I was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. So let me enroll in the master's program. <laughs> um, and I, I really, I never thought I'd be rah, rah Carnegie Mellon, but looking back all these years, I I am very much raw, raw Carnegie Mellon because they were very much into making sure we were very interdisciplinary. didn't matter what you were studying. Um, So I ended up taking a lot of cognitive science and statistics. They didn't really have a political science program. Uh, So I ended up taking classes on like survey evaluation uh, and, and, you know, building things to measure stuff. Um, And then that also ended up being what I did in graduate school. Uh, and my my thesis was uh, on No Child Left Behind, which is a, a measurement system that the Bush administration, was it the Bush administration? Might have predated them. But uh, this is, I can't believe I can say this out loud. That was 20 years ago. But uh, I looked at the way, the, the measurement tools, the evaluation tools, that the Department of Education was using to evaluate the success or failure of school districts. 
And, uh, and performance measurement really means um, program evaluation. So trying to understand processes, trying to understand the human element of it. I mean, human beings are very squishy and messy, right? It's not, it's a different social science and cognitive and behavioral sciences, slightly different than being what some people call hard scientists. Um, I, I really don't appreciate those words, but, uh, you know, a lab, someone who can go into a lab and observe things that have a very um, regular kind of output because they're inanimate objects versus human beings who are unique, amazing, and tr sometimes troublesome problem solvers, right? Uh, so I, I looked at the way that they were evaluating uh, performance of schools and then apportioning resources as rewards, which, you know, I mean, I could talk an entire hour about how that was wrong. Um, but there's a lot, just technically speaking, from an evaluation and behavioral standpoint that they got wrong. And uh, so that ended up being my thesis. Um, and then the project was on a transportation issue um, in Pittsburgh, where Carnegie Mellon's located. So that, that, you know, that was the basis for a lot of what I ended up doing in my entire career. And even, and it definitely drives a lot of what we do at Cultivated Insights. Um, which is trying to understand the inputs, the outputs, understand what motivates or incentivizes human behavior. And then also the, the other big piece of this that I definitely wanna mention is um, metrics really matter when they're connected to behavior. And so you always wanna make sure that if you are measuring something that is being used as an honest mirror or as a diagnostic, right? Like it's meant, to help create feedback loop that lets the participant learn about their own behavior and make adjustments. Uh, the, the thing that was problematic with No Child Left Behind and with other metrics that I've seen in evaluation that I've seen out there is that if you have something called goal displacement, in other words, if you're teaching to the test, if the goal is to get a, a high test score and not to actually measure critical learning skills and things of that nature, um, you end up having this goal displacement, which is a, just a fancy term for saying either cheating or people just don't uh, engage with the metric and you're not measuring anything intelligent, right? So Albert Einstein's very famous for saying not everything that is meaningful can be measured and not everything that is measured is meaningful. And so I think about that a lot when I'm designing evaluation. I love that. And, and I love the metrics matter because you lead in beautifully to the next thing I wanted to talk about. I know you use as one of your assessment modalities, you like using the disc, which is a great yeah. measurement of personality. Mm -hmm. I use the habit finder assessment, which to me allows me to go one level deeper into behavior. So when you're looking at metrics and cultivating and looking at the insight and coming up to gain insight to come up with your playbook or kind of your assessment back to that C-suite leader and their team. What are some of the things that you see a repetitive behavior pattern for? And kind of part two of that question is, what are you noticing pre-COVID and during COVID? Um, I think I'll take the second question first, I guess. I, I think when I decided to launch the business and, and to do this, I, I think there was a couple of things that guided me. One was, I'm just a nerd for learning. And I, I really think that it's important 
again, with brain plasticity and problem solving and things like that, and, and internal motivation of every employee, you want to keep fostering that growth and professional development and learning and development is, is just such a great investment because the employee feels seen and heard and supported. And then they're bringing that enthusiasm and energy back into the organization. But I felt that also sometimes workshops were not taken seriously um, because there wasn't any real evaluation attached to it. A lot of evaluation ends up being a referendum on the likability of the trainer and that's completely useless. What we really want to understand is, you know, how much have things, ha, did we move the dial for the employee? And, uh, and a lot of the reason too, I noticed I was getting booked to come and work with organizations when there was some sort of internal issue, like, you know, leadership change, or maybe there's a set of layoffs and HR kind of knows, okay, if something creates turbulence, well, let's just do an all hands and bring in a trainer and, you know, teach interesting new skills or entertainment or whatever the case is. Um, and so I really wanted to make sure, again, as a scientist, like, can we measure the effect of this intervention, the intervention being the workshop or the all hands or whatever, right? So I started, I looked for an instrument uh, and found a couple um, to guide the questions that I asked before and after the workshop. Um, to gauge people's trust, self-reported trust levels for various, you know, groups of people in the organization. And I was able to actually measure and confirm what we might know intuitively, which is trust levels go up after you have a group activity. Um, and I could measure it not only, you know, to, to see that shift, but it, in almost all cases, it's actually statistically significant that shift is. And that's important to me because that credibility is a big deal for me and using metrics um, appropriately is a, is a big deal for me. And a lot of the times employees will be way more honest with a third party because I never disaggregate the data for the client. Um, so they feel they can be more honest with me. They don't have to lie to me. Um, when organizations do kind of internal stuff, um, assessment and employee engagement stuff, I mean, you know, they know who's taking that data, right? And so that might kind of create a little bit of, introduce a little bit of bias, but um, but that, and that's also what I tell my clients is like, listen, we're going to do this thing and we're going to evaluate and see whether or not the employees are acquiring this, this new skill or new perspective. Um, and then we'll also ask these other questions that you can use, uh, as validation points against your internal tracking. Um, which I feel, Deb, I feel like I went a little bit off topic there, but let me come back to what you asked about pre and post COVID. Cause I think that's, uh, a lot of people think about that right now, obviously, um, pre COVID. So I work kind of all over, uh, frankly, all over the globe, but, you know, would get booked out to do stuff anywhere outside of not just here in Texas, but Austin, of course, being a hub of the tech industry. Um, there's, ton there's just tons of work here. Um, and what I noticed was that people, clients were booking me to come in and work with their staff because there was always this flight risk. Um, in Austin, before the pandemic, our unemployment rate was like 2.9% or something like that. I mean, it was just insane. If you had a, a heartbeat, someone would hire you. You know what I mean? It was very competitive and em employers and organizations were concerned with holding on to their staff. Um, and now it's just a completely different ball game. And it's not, it's not for the reasons you would think, you know what I mean? It's not that people are necessary. I mean, part of it, I think is people aren't, moving because the economy overall is constricting, but, um, 
I think in times of crisis, we don't necessarily have an instinct to jump ship, you know, so people kind of want to like hold on to those jobs. But what I've also realized from talking to folks um, and to clients um, is that people just have to learn a different way of working. You know what I mean? I'm sure you've seen, you've heard the same thing. I've, I've your other podcast guests too have talked to this, you know what I mean? Um, and so, you know, and I'm actually about to roll out um, a set of new modules. I mean, most of the stuff I did before was, yes, it was on disc, um, mostly to help people. Un- it wasn't so much about understanding themselves. It's a little bit, all of my assessments are about doing some self-assessment and self-awareness, but a majority of my time is actually taking these frameworks and helping people learn to apply them externally so that they can be adaptive to their colleagues and their coworkers and be supportive. Um, and, and so now we're doing the same thing. It's not with an eye towards retention. It is actually an eye towards finding a new way to be functional, right? So two of the modules I'm developing, one is uh, on stress styles to help people understand and, and be able to characterize certain behaviors and understand, oh, that's the stress style of my colleague and this is what I can do to support them. Um, and then the burnout stuff, I mean, there's tons of burnout indexes out there. Um, the burnout index is actually guided somewhat by my own experience in burnout and chronic illness and then recovering to some level of remission. Um, but I think helping people understand limits is now the new thing. Um, I know that it helped me and, and it seems to be helping folks that I'm working with. Um, but helping people understand the, the phrase that I use is bright yellow lines, which is what I always would say. And then it ended up now it's actually becoming like a thing, but the, the whole idea is on a road, if you stay between the bright yellow lines, you're going to be safe. And if the road is your life, you want to get down that road as far as possible. Um, and depending on kind of where you might fall on, on the burnout index, you know, if you're, if you're in stasis, if you're feeling great, like go off road, you know what I mean? Like go and do whatever you want. But if you, you know, are at a stage where, you know, you're, you are burnt out or extremely burnt out, um, you have to, and again, it goes back to behavioral modification. You have to learn what are the limits, what are the bright yellow lines, and then how do we stick between, keep between those bright yellow lines. Well, I want to thank you for being uh, so open and and vulnerable and honest because the reason I left the disability case management world and transitioned into coaching wasn't because of the transferable skills. I was saddened by the lack of boundary management. Mm. I I was saddened by the burnout and rapid increase in chronic illness terminal diagnoses. I lost a few of my clients to cancer and they told me at end of life that they knew it was related to the cultural toxicity that they were engaged in at work because they looked at their life as a whole, which people do at the end of life. And I love that, number one, I I love that you were able to get out of that scenario and heal and you created that beautiful tool, which is now, you know, helping lots of other people. But, you know, a big proponent of my branding language is self-care. So boundary management is 
it's necessary. And what I'm seeing through COVID-19 and the C-suite leaders and executive teams that I'm working with is they're seeing how fundamental it is for them to lead and model that behavior of self-care. And mm -hmm leads beautifully into my next question. What imperfection do you think you have or have demonstrated towards being a heart-centered leader? Oh man, um, again, in the spirit of deep transparency, um, I, I think because the environments that I worked in, I mean, I worked with military families, I worked in counterintelligence before I came to political work, and then I spent almost 20 years working in politics and elections. Um, and I think that part of my survival and career success when I was doing that, that part of my career, was becoming very objective and really pulling emotion totally out of it. Um, I think it was helpful for me in some ways to always approach things as a scientist. Uh, I think it, it also was not, I mean, <laughs> uh, I am a woman of color who always looks way younger than I actually am. And so there was that kind of stuff that I was dealing with. And so I think my reaction to that, my way of navigating through my career and that part of my career was to never talk about emotion or appear vulnerable or soft, to be honest. And I, I really had an aversion to phrases like self-care. Um, and that is an imperfection um, that I'm trying to evolve away from. And I think I've also heard, I, I've realized you know, in my own work and also with, you know, I interview executives all the time for Forbes. And I think there's this, this wonderful, important softening um, where, where you can't be dismissive of self-care and, and we have to pay attention to it because if we don't, I mean, you know, <laughs> then everything breaks down. So if, if the imperfection I really want to own is um, I, I have been working on being more transparent and being an emotional creature and um, helping people really embrace that, pay attention to it. Um, and also I think a lot of these assessments uh, or models that I've come up with, um, <laughs> I, I always, feedback's an interesting thing, right? And, and I've trained you know, hundreds of people from a variety of backgrounds and I always pay attention to the feedback I get from a certain type of participant. And they're generally middle-aged white guys. And they tend to have this, uh, this response that is a little bit of a backhanded compliment. But it's an important proof point for me because it means that the concepts and tactics I'm trying to get out there are landing and people are being able to accept them and absorb them and use them. But anyhow, this has happened probably a hand, like half a dozen times with different types of audiences, white collar, uh, you know, tech companies. Um, I have a couple of uh, state agencies and, you know, the, the response from this particular type of participant is they'll, you know, 
sometimes they'll do it in front of the whole group. A lot of times it's afterwards and they'll just come up and say, you know what? I thought when you, when I found out you were going to talk about personality or stress styles, I really thought, you know, this is a bunch of hooey and I almost walked out, but I'm glad I stayed because I think I learned something. And I think you might've helped me figure out something with my wife. And <laughs> I always laugh because it's like, okay, good. It's had a breakthrough moment, you know? And these are, these are the type of people that they're not thinking about self-care. They might have an aversion to self-care and they need it the most, right? Well, it, it opens up a beautiful conversation for me to talk about metacognition. Yes. And I'm like, okay, we're going to talk about how you think about thinking. And, you know, I get the glazed look and it's funny, but when you break down the science and layman's terms it, they get it. And it's always, it's that aha moment for me. And I usually, like you say, it's the softening and I usually have a good laugh and I get, well, of course I do that. And I'm like, common sense isn't always common practice. Let's go back and be truthful and authentic here. And, and when you do call them on the behavior, yeah. it's always followed up by a strategy and again, behavioral modification. So it's the hamster wheel, but it's, 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 it's almost like relinquishing the repetitive pattern of behavior. And once they see yes. it by an outset, an outside set of eyes, that's when the light goes off. So just so much synergy in the work we do. So mm. I want to end with what I call my fab four. Okay. So these are the fun four questions that I get to ask you. And these are the non-thinking. It's like, what is just on the top of your mind and, and comes to. So if you could interview or sit with someone, whether they're living or have passed away, who would it be and why? Oh man, there, I have, there are so many people that I think, I think the first one that's top of mind for me is Ida B. Wells. Um, I think that the United States and frankly, the world is at a very interesting turning point. Uh, it would be really, and she was, you know, an incredible journalist and leader and activist. Um, and I would, I would want to sit with her and ask her what she was thinking when she was doing the difficult work that she was doing. Because, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like people get defensive because they're protective of a set of world beliefs that they might have. And I think that one thing a lot of folks, maybe all of us are struggling with right now is, you know, and I use that example of like personality with, you know, a certain person, per people that, you know, are, there's this idea around white masculinity and what that should look like. Um, and you can't kind of go after it directly, but you can say, well, can we introduce a new framework that lets you adjust your perspective? Um, and I think we live in a time where we're able to have those conversations, even if they're difficult. And Ida B. Wells was extraordinary. And, uh, you know, a black journalist at a time you know, a hundred years ago where she was exposing things and making people really reckon with what, how they, you know, constructed their identity or things of that nature. It would just be wonderful to be able to sit at her feet and, and listen and learn from her. That's an exciting one. Yeah. If I, if I went to your friends and your family uh -oh. <laughs> and I asked them to describe Tanya in one word, what would that word be? Probably fiery, which I'm not crazy about, but it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
Well, fiery is a good thing. And I think it's synonymous with grit and tenacity. So that, that's a good word. Now, yeah. going back to self-care, my third question is um, you have survived burnout and a chronic illness and learned a lot along the way. What is one of your favorite daily practices for self-care? Uh, I've done a lot of calisthenics and stretching. Um, I think that, that that has been really useful in the morning. Um, the other thing is, so when, when, I, when I got finally to a point, I got really sick in 2013. I think there was stuff kind of going on before then, but 2013 was when it really came to a head. Um, and then it was basically two and a half years of just resetting everything. Um, and one of the things I couldn't do, according to my doctor, was any sort of rigorous sports. Um, so when I finally got the green light in late 2015, uh, I went out and signed up for the most aggressive sport I could find, which was Krav Maga. Um, I, I don't, it just, I don't know. It, because I am a fiery person and I'm called various things, um, I loved being in the studio and, and in gyms because I was never the most fiery person in the room all of a sudden, like, you know, they, I was being praised by people for my aggression on the mat, which I find hilarious, but, um, because I'm really not a very good, uh, athlete. I'm more of a mathlete than an athlete. You know what I mean? So, uh, the other self-care though, that I've done, you know, everything's closed right now, but, um, I do have a wave bag. Um, which is like a heavy bag, but it's on a stand in my backyard. So I try every few days to go outside and, um, and work on various drills and punching drills and kicking drills. Um, there's this phrase that people say, you know, don't forget to breathe. And it always kind of drives me a little bananas. Uh, breathing is involuntary. But uh, so I try to tell people like, don't forget to yell. <laughs> like it's very cleansing uh, <laughs> to yell. It's very good for your core muscles. <laughs> But I, and that's the other reason why I think I ended up, you know, it's been four and a half years now, four and a half years in my late thirties, early forties. I would not suggest this. Like if you're interested in martial arts, do it as early as possible. But, um, but, uh, I have found it incredibly, uh, that's my form of self-care. It's, it is very aggressive, but, um, but it's, it's just, but it's personal. It has yeah. self-care has to be what's personal to you. And, I'm going to, I'm going to follow up on the breathing point and say, I'm a yoga teacher and breathing is important. So you and I will have another conversation around that. Oh yes, please. <laughs> um, my fourth question is, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, great question. Oh man. Um, about a month in from the pandemic, I was sitting at my dining room table and I looked at the shelf, uh, of, of a bunch of books that I have. And there's this one shelf I have, it's all of my negotiation and leadership books. Well, one shelf of many, we have a lot of books in this house. Anyhow. Um, but I was sitting there, I was looking at these books that are considered negotiation canon. And I realized, and I think this goes back to heart centered leadership, you know, like I realized that so much of negotiation has been built on this, a very specific type of power, it's been built around the idea of competition um, that you, we use words like leverage, right? And that's force. And I sat, I just had this moment where I was like, everything's got to be rewritten. Everything's got to be rewritten, you know? And, and I have a couple of books in the works and sometimes I lose motivation, but that really kind of 
struck home to me that my legacy is I want to leave behind some really useful books that will be relevant in five years and 10 years. And maybe even if I'm lucky in a hundred years that someone would come and pick up the book and read it and that they would learn a set of skills that help them become more of who they truly are, first of all, right? Authenticity being so important, but also understanding that power is not only about force. Power is about being magnetic, right? It's about bringing people together. It's about understanding problem solving as a way of bringing in perspective and being inclusive um, and, and again, cultivating right? Cultivating a vision, but also that it's expansive, you know? So when people say, oh, well, they have good leverage in that negotiation, I say, you know, I, I try to help them evolve their thinking and say, well, is it, is it leverage or are they acting as a magnet, right? Uh, drawing people towards you because you have such an interesting idea or a solution is a much more gentle and I think powerful approach than having, every time I hear the word leverage, I think crowbar, you know what I mean? And like, you don't just have to have a crowbar, you could have a magnet, right? And think about all the different ways that the natural world also teaches us about power. Hierarchies are actually very vulnerable to disease or threat, right? If you have a hierarchy, if you have power built off of a hierarchy, then you take out the top and the whole system fails, like an ecosystem. But if the ecosystem's built off of the idea of a web where there's space for everybody, there's reciprocity, there's synergy, then that's a much more resilient model. Um, and it's also one that is where I feel most comfortable. And so I hope my legacy is I help people redefine power and do it in such a way where we're really following what has heart and meaning and not just thinking about competition. You know, competition had its time and I feel like collaboration is necessary and useful right now. So I hope that's my legacy that I leave behind some blueprints. <laughs> well, and, and I think with the, your fiery personality and your, <laughs> your leadership in reading and knowledge and, and what you bring, I, I think you'll succeed doing that. Tanya, I am just, I'm so thrilled to have spent this time with you today. I want to thank you for being on the Imperfect Podcast. I look forward to continued conversations and grateful to LinkedIn that our, our paths cross. And I know there's some synergy and this won't be our last conversation. I'm just thrilled to be here. Thank you, Deb. My pleasure. So I'm going to end the podcast with my favorite five things, and that's to follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thanks for joining me on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.